Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Feel Your Fandom Podcast. My name is Saint. And I'm Jim. Jim, welcome back. How you doing, buddy? Oh, it was a rough weekend. It was a rough weekend, my friend. I, I really... Uh, yeah, you were kind of touching on oh, that. Oh, we'll get into that bit. in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it was, it was not a good weekend. But, um, you know, it's a new week. I'm trying to look on the bright side. Always look on the bright side of life. Trying to see, you know, silver linings and sunny days and uh, just trying to put it behind me. How about you? Uh, well, better than that. And, and I'm sure, like yeah. I said, we'll get into it. But uh, I don't know. My weekend was okay. I didn't do a whole lot, which is, you know, somewhat nice. Uh, I had a medical appointment just going in for a diabetic follow-up where they're teaching me how to use the needles and everything. Which is really weird because they're teaching me like a month and a half, two months after I've been using them already. Which... Yeah. Strikes me his ass backwards, but hmm, I don't know. What do I know? But, uh, yeah, not too bad. So, after the last conversation we had, we talked all about Legos and our fandom for Legos and how I haven't played with Legos in a friggin' millennium, it seems like. And so I went out, and uh, that same day after we got done talking, I went on AliExpress because I knew there was going to be no way I was going to be able to afford the aftermarket price on that. Uh, Lego Voltron set, which I've been coveting and had my eye on for ever since it was announced, before it was even released. So I, I had been looking for a while at the uh, the knockoffs, or what did you call them? The uh, the boot Legos. Boot Legos, yes, <laughs> I love that term. But uh, I've been looking at uh, the set on uh, AliExpress and eBay and things like that, and. Uh, it's only gone down in price, which is good. I mean, because unlike Lego, boot Legos don't have the same kind of appreciation. You know what I mean? So it's down to, I think it was down to like $54, $53 with free shipping. And then they gave me like a $5 coupon. So the $5 coupon paid for the tax. And it was like $55 out all said and done. And I'm like, great. It said, oh, estimated delivery time, September 17th. I'm like, oh, well, you know, slow boat to China and all that shit. Whatever. Whenever it shows up, I'll be more than happy to fucking yeah. play with Legos. And so I get home from work yesterday, and this is... We're, we're recording on a Monday today. Uh, yesterday was Sunday. So, seven... No, I must not have ordered it the same day, because it only took five days for delivery. From date of order to Which, date I mean, of delivery from China with free yeah. shipping. Usually so, anytime you order anything from overseas, whether it's AliExpress or God forbid Wish, which I know I've done, <laughs> a lot of the time, yeah, Wish. Uh, wish is a, is a <laughs> wish I'd ordered another else. thing. Yeah, we should talk about that at some point. But oh, we uh, could. I guess the reason why Wish keeps their prices so low is because, you know, in, even in a world where we've all become accustomed to two-day prime shipping, right. and we all got kind of spoiled by that, uh, you're lucky if you get shit from Wish within two months, and that's yeah. because they... they and that's generous. They haven't, uh, yeah, the, the, the overseas warehouses that supply Wish with all of their bizarre range of products, um, they, they just keep an open shipping container, and they don't send it till it's full. So, you know, you have to wait until everybody else orders stuff, and uh, you can order things. Sometimes they have things designated as this will come faster. There's a little like drop ship on items. the thing with a little truck. Yeah, but 
for the most part, I mean, if you order something from Wish, you got to wait till the, the shipping container is full. Then they put it on a boat, and then it comes to you. So the trade-off is, yeah, you're getting low prices and of dubious quality. There's all those fun <laughs> memes of like, what I ordered from Wish and what I actually got from Wish. I've had pretty decent luck because uh, for a while there, I was collecting wristwatches, and I, I was collecting really cheap knockoff wristwatches of, of all of the interesting designs that a lot of uh, wristwatch manufacturers, and I've got something like 150 of them hanging on a uh, pegboard in the inside of my closet door. And they're kind of fun. I, and my only criteria for collecting watches was, is it a weird, funky, interesting design that would probably catch somebody's eye and be a conversation starter? Because uh, I, I tend to favor uh, timepieces that are much like myself, kind of big and chunky and funny looking and <laughs> impractical. Um, so I have a bunch of those. And, and is it more than 20 bucks? I didn't want to spend any more than 20 bucks on any one watch. And the only one time that I broke that rule was uh, when Think Geek was still a thing. And they had the Tesla watch, oh, I miss which Think was a Geek. big steampunk thing that looked like, yeah, I had a, you, you set it with a, uh, a little brass key that fit into the leather strap. And it had a couple of Nixie tube looking things sticking out of the top of it that you could turn on that. and flicker. It was just, yeah, it was a cool watch. That was about 60 bucks. That was the most expensive watch I own, which... Most people who collect watches, they've got a whole case full of Patek Philippe's or, you know, uh, Panerai's or Rolexes or whatever. I don't. I don't have any of that shit. All I have is a bunch of cheap-ass knockoff watches from overseas, but they were fun and interesting and they made me happy for a little while. And and then, of course, I ruined all of that by getting a smartwatch that actually connects to my phone and sends me emails and text messages, so all of them are just kind of sitting there with the batteries dead. But yeah, it was kind that's... of a fun thing to do for a while. I never really got into wearing watches. I, I, do, I do have a smartwatch, but I don't wear it very often, which is sad, because, I mean, it works, but... Um, but, yeah, I mean, like, I was super impressed with the shipping speed on this. Like I said, five days to ship from, from wherever it came from, to me. Not bad um, at all. And that's on the free shipping. I didn't even pay for the expedited shipping, so... Super yeah. cool. So I sat there at my desk before our conversation today, and I just... I started tucking into the box, or it wasn't in a box, it came in a big old padded envelope uh, full of smaller plastic envelopes. Each each uh, each step of the way is, is in a numbered envelope, so there's like 10 envelopes for now step one, four envelopes for step two, and each of the steps uh, builds you part of one of the lions for the Voltron. So I finished step one this morning before we started talking, and that is the the main body of the uh, yellow lion. So, it's not quite complete. My left yet. foot. Two, <laughs> two more steps to go before the yellow lion is complete. But this is a big set. This is like something like 4,500 pieces or something like that. It's a lot. And I wasn't expecting it so quickly. So And, and I, my eyes lit up. As soon as I opened the packet and saw what it was, it's like, I get to play with Legos. So. <laughs> that'll take you a minute to put together but uh like so many other things you invest the time and you're gonna have something pretty cool once right but i got it. i got add though so it's like i'm gonna get that hyper focus that i usually get and just just oh yeah laser focus in on it and get it done so i don't know it that, could be, that, that's it so could much be done fun, by this it? weekend that, that, that pendulum swing between uh, uh executive can't, dysfunction and hyper focus can't do shit and can't it's do so great not yeah, we alternate between can't do shit and have to do all the shit. Yeah, I mean, I definitely get that at work, too. There are some days I'm just like, ah, you know, I have, I, I, I'm so paralyzed by all the shit that I have to do. I'm staring down my queue and looking at all the things I have to take on. I'm like, where do I even start? 
And then, of course, once you get started, that uh, momentum takes over, and pretty soon you're burning through everything, and you look back, and you're done, and you look up at the clock, and you realize, oh, I didn't do anything else but actually the things I needed to do today. I haven't eaten anything for lunch. I haven't gone to the bathroom, which I probably should do. Yeah, yeah, all these things. The work-from-home culture is definitely very conducive to being neurodivergent because... um, yeah, there's, there's not any prescribed time. You have to sit there and have somebody surfing over your shoulder. And if you just don't have the serotonin, you have to do the superhuman impossible thing and push through and do it anyway. Right. And then go home, and then maybe that's when you actually have the serotonin. So this being able to uh, kind of work on my own pace as long as I meet my deadlines thing is actually... It's a pretty nice place to be at this particular point in my life. It's not just the best job I've ever had, but it's also the best working conditions I've ever had. And if there's any silver lining to COVID, which there's not, based on all the loss <laughs> that we had to deal with and all the pain and all the restrictions and all the, uh, the, the illness and death and all that, if there's any silver lining to it, it's just that I think in some ways the work-from-home culture is here to stay. Regardless of whether or not the middle management suck-ups, whose only job is to make sure all the rest of us are working, uh, want us to come back to the office. I just, you know, thankfully my company doesn't have that when are y'all coming back thing. Because during COVID, they acquired so many other companies. And they also uh, got rid of all of their office spaces. They kind of cut all of that expensive commercial real estate that was dragging down the balance sheet. And in that amount of time, anybody who was working for the company kind of took their salary and moved either back home to be closer to family or moved to a less expensive housing market or what have you. So they actually sent out a... Um, a questionnaire at one point saying, hey, if we wanted to potentially float the idea of returning to the office, who'd be interested? And it was a 98.5% no fucking thanks. Oh, hell no! (laughs) Uh, Because even if they decided to do that, A, there's no offices to come back to, and B, we've sort of all scattered to the four winds. I mean, I started this job in Las Vegas, and then I eventually came home to Wisconsin once I realized, hey, if I can work from home, that pretty much means anywhere. I can be a digital nomad if I want. And I'm going to move where it makes the most sense for me to be economically, and that's what I did. So there's just no office to go back to for my company anymore. There isn't. We're completely decentralized, and and it just makes sense for us. And and, uh, I, for one, am super happy about that because it just never made any sense to me. For 20 years, I haven't had a job I couldn't do from home in my underwear. I'm proving that to myself right now. Not (laughs) right now. I promise you I'm wearing pants as we speak. But... Some days when I'm working, I don't. It just doesn't make any sense to me to drive into an office, to spend gas and time, to commute to an office, to sit down at a computer and work on the internet. When I could sit down at a computer and work on the internet at home. And right. do. And my productivity yeah. is, is no different. If anything, it's better. Fair point. Now, that, we're going to put a pin in that because I want to come back to that. But you were going to talk a little bit about uh, your goings-on. So what's, what's going on in your world? Yeah, my weekend was crap. I, I, for various reasons that I'd you know, uh, rather not get into right now, um, I'm really trying to... I, I ran up my credit cards a little bit. My, my credit rating finally got to the point where I could get some credit cards. Yep. So I got some credit cards. And then like a lot of people who kind of get credit cards for the first time, I was mildly irresponsible. Not catastrophically. I'm not like close to bankruptcy or anything. But I took a couple of vacations. I uh, went to go see some concerts on the East Coast. I uh, went to uh, see a couple of concerts in New Orleans. Um, had a nice holiday season, just took some trips, and, and now it's time to pay the piper. And I'm looking at my debt-to-credit ratio and thinking, eh, definitely got to get that down a little bit. Right. Um, and I also bought some musical equipment because uh, uh, the band is starting to play more shows, and the stuff that I had was not really up to snuff, so I got a new guitar amp, I bought a couple of guitars, I had those guitars set up. Anyway, it's been an expensive, maybe last 12 months or so. Right. So I took out some extra jobs uh, over the summer. I... I uh, I've mentioned before that I'm pouring some beers at uh, at a concert venue near me. Um, 
and making some extra cash that way. I've taken on some additional freelance work. Uh, plus, there's the band, and that's bringing in some money. So essentially, I'm working four jobs right now. What's that and, like? And uh, like I was saying earlier, yeah, having time to... Uh, <laughs> it's Well, that's the thing. Like uh, When I was in an original band, we really didn't bring in any money because we recycled a lot of our money into recording costs and all that. I didn't really yeah. walk out of too many gigs with cash in my pocket. That's where but, ours uh, I'm in a cover band now. Yeah, I'm in a cover band now, and it's not the sole purpose of it is not making money, but it is a nice side benefit. So we're booking gigs between 600 and $1,000, and there are four of us, five of us in the band. So we split that, you know, four or five ways, <clears throat> depending on, uh, sometimes we give the drummer some extra, depending on uh, um, how far he has to go, because he not only has all of his drums, which I remember what a pain in the ass those were to haul and set oh, up yeah. and play for four hours, then break down and haul again. But he also has the entire sound and lighting rig. So he's not just got the most amount of equipment to deal with by default, but he's also bringing three times the shit all of us are. So we're giving him some extra whenever we can. And, Dude, I'm a vocalist. The guys I don't bring shit, so I get it. Yeah. <laughs> well, the guys have also been really nice and tossing me a couple extra bucks every now and again because I work in marketing my entire life. So uh, I have done things like I've printed up business cards and stickers and I got a nice big vinyl banner with our logo and URL on it from Vistaprint that we can hang up behind us when we play. So I've sunk some money into some promo materials and they've compensated me for that. So we break it out fair. Um, but yeah, I've been working all these jobs and trying to get my, uh, my credit. Uh, it's not bad. I'm just trying to improve it because I want to be in better shape financially. Right. So then over the weekend, I got a notification that uh, a couple of unforeseen medical bills that I never even saw the original bills because my insurance handles that stuff. I do get, this is not a bill, explanation of benefits paperwork from my insurance all the time. Right. I look at those and I think, okay, great, not a bill. And I put them in my filing box and file them away in case I need them for tax reasons or reference or what have you. Um, but then I got hit with these two bang-bang medical bills for about $1,000 between the two of them. And because they're both reasonably significant amounts of money and also brand new, my credit rating dipped 30 points over the weekend. Yeah. So it's just disheartening. It's disheartening to be on this hamster wheel of just running and running and running, working four jobs essentially, trying to get my credit rating up, and then have the system just be able to shit-bomb me out of nowhere with a couple of unforeseen things that I never even got bills for in the first place, and I'm being sent to collections for medical bills. And the actual real pain in the ass of that is, I don't know if anybody listening knows this, but um, I don't know if it's legislation or whether it's just an agreement or what happened exactly. I'd have to look it up, and I, I've got other things to think about right now. But the credit bureaus have agreed to not consider and to take off medical debt. And... I think of all of the stuff that I have on my credit report that is in collections, um, it's only three or four things. And they're all medical in nature. Um, every one of them are things that I had disputes with my insurance company over. They were supposed to cover it. They didn't. So on principle, I'm just like, fuck it. Let it go. It's not hurting me that much. And any credit counselor that you talk to will always say... If by any chance you get sent to collections, yeah, that's a pain in the ass and it is going to hurt your credit rating, but do not pay collection agencies um, for several reasons. First and foremost, they buy those things for pennies on the dollar. Their entire business model is exploiting misery. Um, they don't actually own the, the, the original debt to begin with. You never contracted with them. Uh, so just don't pay it. Don't pay it. It, it, it just doesn't help you. It, they're just money-grubbing leeches. Don't pay them. And thing is, even if you do pay them, uh, they can still leave that shit on your credit report for the full seven years. So all things being equal, if it's going to be on your credit report hurting you for the same amount of time as it would be otherwise, why would you bother spending the money? So don't pay it. 
So that's the advice I've followed. And I've got a couple of things that are six years and two months, six years and three months. They're old medical bills from when I had shoulder surgery in Las Vegas that should have been covered and weren't, and they're getting ready to drop off. Then all of a sudden these two new ones pop up, and all of a sudden I'm down 32 points on my credit rating after I'm trying to get everything back up again. So it just it's just a pain in the ass. The system is rigged. The system is bullshit. Credit scores weren't even a thing until 1986. And it's just one more of those things that anybody in our generation has every right and plenty of room to bitch about. Any Gen yeah. Xer who wants to uh, look at that and say, hey, you know, in the 70s when Carter was president, he may not have been a great president. He's been a great ex-president. Let's just be honest about that. But when he was president, he wasn't that effectual. But when Reagan came in and immediately dropped the top-tier tax rate on corporations and, and rich people from uh, 70s and 80s percents to uh, somewhere in the 30% range, and single-handedly created the 1% and and created the lopsided economy that we all deal with now where wages have not kept up with the pace of inflation and CEOs are getting paid several thousand percent more than their median rate paid employee and all this other shit. It just sucks to to be the first generation that kind of got left behind. You know, the, the boomers were able to buy houses on reputation and merit and then they closed the door behind them after they yeah. got all the, the, the stuff that they got. Which and it just kind of dovetails into the next thing we wanted to talk about. The whole thing that's been making the news lately about this whole uh, the one-two punch of entitlement and the latest sort of division that most people are falling on, be it political, uh, socioeconomic, or philosophical, or what have you. Right. Um, th- those two punches being the student loan forgiveness program and um, also the uh, the quiet quitting thing, which has been making a lot of headlines lately. Yeah, so, uh, student loan forgiveness. Uh, I, I, there's a lot of stuff going on around that about uh, oh, people are just feeling like, oh, well, I had to pay all my student loans down and I didn't get any help, so why should you? It's like this this bullshit attitude of because I had to suffer, you have to suffer. It's like, no, I'm the exact opposite, man. I paid for years on my student loans to my Me too. ex-wife. Because it was yeah. all under her name, and I was trying to stay above water, so I was making payments to her and dealing with her when I really wanted to be dealing with almost anything but her. Mm-hmm. Um, but for years and years and years, I struggled and paid, and finally uh, I came out with a big old loan and, and paid the rest of it off with the loan and a mixture of the loan and, and some of the uh, uh, the relief payments from COVID and this, that, and the other thing, we piece together enough money to settle it and be done with it. Incidentally, best thing I ever did. It's been the most yeah. relieving year and a half since that's happened. I swear to God, not having to Ugh. worry when I'm going to get an email or hear from her. and It's been great. So yeah, there's two kinds of people. The, the people that say that I suffered so everybody else has to suffer in perpetuity going forward, or I suffered and nobody else should have to suffer. So that relief no, you feel exactly. of having those payments be behind you, everybody should be able to feel that. Everybody, and, how soulless and, there, and how heartless so, do you have to be? That's right. And then there's such a disparity between uh, the interest rates and everything for student loans. People oh are people can be paying hundreds of thousands of dollars and making no headway on their student yeah. loans. Because the interest rates are so astronomical. <clears throat> they're, just, they're never going to get paid. You're in a debt cycle for life. I have a friend who lives in life. Virginia. Yeah, she, she, she lives in Virginia. I, I met her when I was working at Capital One. Uh, which is another whole kettle of fish that I, you know, talk about financial shit. But she uh, is a school teacher. Wallet. Yeah, 
but um, Tish. Uh, she's a school teacher. She teaches elementary school. Lovely person. And she actually had to change schools halfway through her college career because she was taking uh, education and her school stopped offering it. So she had to transfer to a different college. Okay. And in so doing, she had to take on some additional student loan responsibility. And I, I don't know. I haven't talked to her. I don't know if she's been forgiven or not. But at one point, she was laughing about it over dinner. And she was saying, yeah, I, when I changed schools, I had to take out a $40,000 student loan. And after the last eight years of diligently paying $475 a month over the last eight years on this $40,000, I've managed to get it all the way down to $47,000. And I just, my jaw dropped open. And I, because I, I, I had student loans, I went to a, a reasonably expensive school and I had to pay those things for years. But man, just, just to, make to any be sense. paying that much money for that long and to be losing ground, it's like how I feel being on this, this, uh, treadmill slash hamster wheel of working three and a half, four jobs trying to get my credit rating up and then get shit-bombed with these two medical bills out of nowhere that dipped me 32 points. It's just, the whole system is complete bullshit. But it's rigged. It's getting wrong. the student loans forgiven is just such, how much of an asshole do you have to be to be one of those people that says, I suffered so now everybody else has to suffer? There really are two kinds of people in the world. People who say, I suffered so now you have to suffer. And people who say, I suffered so you shouldn't have to. And I'm proud to be in that second group. I just think anybody who would criticize anything that, that causes that much relief to that many people. But that's the culture that we're in now. I mean, we had yeah. people that were anti-vaxxers. We had people through COVID that were, you know, taking horse tranquilizers instead of uh, taking the, the vetted and proven and medically tested vaccines that kept the most same, of us from, the from same dying. The my body, shit. my choice people who are now taking away women's yes. rights, by the way. I find the irony disgusting. Fucking infuriating. It's nothing short of that. But and then yeah. the whole quiet quitting thing. Now which that's something I, think, I had to look up because I'd heard the term yeah. like a dozen times, and I didn't know what it meant. It's like are they just leaving and not coming back? Because I mean, shit, we've all wanted to do that. But I thought uh, that was called ghosting. <laughs> so I looked it up, and all it is is people doing their job that they get paid for and going home, not going above and yeah. beyond. For a company that doesn't go above and beyond for its employees. And let me tell you something. Yeah. That just makes sense. Why yeah, would you go above and beyond for a company that doesn't give two shits about you? I don't get it. I mean, the conventional boomer wisdom for many, many years was go to college and get a good job and then work your ass off, work your way up, bootstraps, success ladder, blah, 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 all that long-standing <laughs> conventional wisdom bullshit. But... People in our generation have not seen... I mean, my parents' generation was the last one. Like, my dad worked 30 years and got a gold watch in a retirement party. Nobody in our generation gets that because there isn't any loyalty. No, now you have to go um, to work at been, fucking Walmart when you retire yeah. so you can make the ends meet. And as a matter of fact, after he retired, my dad went to Walmart. Oh, God to damn it. No, he did because he retired in 2001, in June of 2001, and then September of 2001 came along. And, of course, we all know what happened on 9-11, and, of course, the ripple effect that had in every aspect of life. Uh, suddenly, his retirement, because a lot of it was tied up in mutual funds that then tanked, was 60% of what it should have been when he retired. So he did have to go to Walmart and work for a couple of years, and so did my mom. So, yeah, that's how that works out. But 
our generation was sold a bill of goods of go to college and get a good job and then work your way up and put in the extra sweat equity and all this other bullshit, and it just hasn't come to pass. Nope. And we realize that over multiple disappointments. I myself have been the subject of many downsizings and layoffs and mergers and acquisitions and losing jobs through no fault of my own. I've never been fired from a job, but I've lost plenty of jobs because things just happen at a level above me that means that I'm just no longer viable in that position. You're fired! Uh, so that's the thing that happens. So anybody who does the quiet quitting thing, it used to be, there's actually a term for it that exists. Quiet quitting was coined by the ruling class to be, uh, to have a, a, a denigrating epithet slur, horrible thing to say about people that do it. Oh, you're only going to do the job you got hired to do? Yeah, because yeah, I've been sure. busting my ass for years. I haven't gotten any promotions. I haven't, I've gotten barely the minimum uh, wage raise, if I've gotten any at all. And of course, in the last couple of years, I got, I got the, my company's a good company. I got the maximum raise for my company at my last employer review because I said, I'm doing a great job. I have job security. They're happy to have me. Um, but it was 6% in a, an environment where the inflation rate is anywhere from eight and a half to 9%. Now that's not a criticism of my company. They gave me the most they were able to give me and I got the most anybody else got, but essentially it was a 3% pay cut. If you want to really get down to brass tacks and math, which I don't. Um, because it sounds like I'm criticizing them, and I'm not. It's not their fault. Um, right. But this idea of, of quiet quitting, used to, there's, a, there's a word for it. There's actually an existing term that people have used to describe this phenomenon, and it's called work to rule. And that's what it's called. Uh, and there are a lot of people... It's been a thing for a long time. And I saw an article that I posted on my Facebook, and I want to say it was in the Washington Post or the New York Times or something, that uh, said, you know, the Zoomers and Millennials are getting all the credit for this quiet quitting phenomenon, but... Let's once again uh, not forget the forgotten generation and credit it where it's due and give that credit to the, uh, the, the Gen Xers because they were the first generation to figure out, hey, hard work doesn't necessarily always result in, in, in reward. You don't always get what you, you know, the sweat equity you put in. Right. And they were called slackers at the time, uh, but uh, they essentially invented this idea, this work-to-rule idea. So it's not a new phenomenon. It just has a new name. Um, but uh, one of the, 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 the most fun things that I think I saw in reference to this was a friend of mine put up uh, the classic uh, Drake meme of the, uh, nope, not that, but yes, this, the four-panel meme of uh, quiet quitting? No. Why don't we call it uh, inflation-adjusted effort? And I think that <laughs> makes a lot of sense. So uh, I'm not going to say that I don't necessarily do a little extra for my company once in a while. Um, because they're a good company and they do take care of me as best they can. Uh, this is the only company I've ever worked for in my life that actually does what they say and, and says what they do. Uh, if they say something, you can take it to the bank. They've never lied to me. They've never made a false promise. They've never said they're going to deliver something they don't. And I appreciate that. So there are times when something does happen that does require a little bit of extra effort and I do put it in. But there are other times when something that's being asked, not by the company, but by somebody within the company who doesn't know the deal, uh, in terms of like either deadlines or workload or, or how a particular task is supposed to look. And uh, my team will get together on our private Teams chat and we'll say, yeah, you know what, that's pretty unreasonable. We're going to kick the due date on that. We're going to admonish the person who put in this task and say, that's not how we do that. We need at least you know three to five days lead time on a task this large. We can't have this for you tomorrow. We have other things that came in a couple of days ago that need to be done tomorrow because that's how that deadline-driven business works. But, you know, we have to... Uh, we have to do things in a certain way. So, and my company gives me the freedom to do that, the ability to, to push back on things and say, hey, look, we have a lot of shit we have to do, and, and so this is a thing. But ultimately, 
I think it's all all the, the quiet quitting thing, uh, and and the economically all of it is just is is emblematic of the this weird sea ch- not a weird I don't want to say weird because that sounds bad but this this noticeable sea change in shift of power from the the corporate level to the worker level whether it's Starbucks employees and mass getting up and walking out because somebody got fired for organizing a union effort or whether it's <clears throat> companies saying hey it's time to come back to the office and the employees and mass saying yeah no I'm happy making my own lunch at home and not commuting and not spending the gas and working in my jammies. No, there's no reason for me to come back to the office when I can sit at home and do a work on my computer. And I think it's kind of like, it's in a way kind of poetic justice because when we, we when the country shifted away from a manufacturing economy to a service economy, we don't have to drive to a factory to run the machines anymore. We can all sit at home and work on computers. And that was something that was a conscious cost-saving effort on the part of the, of the, of the, the corporations. And now the upshot of that is we can all just sit at home and work on computers. And if they're going to tell us to come back to the office, we have the not just right, but the logic on our side. And also the numbers to be able to say, yeah, fuck you. That's not happening. And it's a tight labor market with uh, unemployment in like a 3.5% range. Yeah, we're not doing it. And I, you know, if if my company at some point said you got to come back to the office, I'd say, well, I started this job in Vegas and now I'm in Wisconsin. So what are we going to do about that? I, I'm, I'm essentially in my office. It's a one-person office. I have a desk. It's next to my bed. That's where I get my work done. And if you can point to anything I've done in the last two years since I've been remote that has not been on time, up to snuff, and exactly what was asked for, and by my own employer reviews, excellent, then, you know, maybe I'll uh, think about heading into a co-workspace a couple days a week. But until such time as my work suffers, I- I'm just going to stay. But thankfully, my company is not the company that's saying that. They have uh, put it in writing, and they've committed to saying any employee who wants to stay remote can for as long as, as they want to stay remote. And overwhelmingly, at a 98.5%, no fucking thanks rate, have we all said, yeah, we don't want to go back to the office. So, yeah, that's an interesting thing that's going on. Quiet quitting. I don't know, man. It just yeah. seems... The euphemistic speaking of management and, and the people... I don't want to call them the ruling class because they don't rule. Fuck them. But uh, this this euphemistic speaking and this way of belittling something that's not mm-hmm. necessarily even a negative. Yeah. Oh, they're just doing their job? They're just doing the job I pay them for? What the hell? Yeah. It yeah, doesn't make any sense to me. So. And it hasn't happened to my company, and it wouldn't because they're a good company, but at the same time, I, I've definitely seen... It's it's been quite quite a thing on TikTok the quiet quitting thing and, and people are saying uh, yeah well you know what uh, if you want to give me extra work to do if somebody left and we need to play catch up and you need me to put in extra time and you're giving me all their work too Fucking then you're also giving me a chunk of their salary yeah pay me for it yeah if, if I'm going to be doing the jobs of one and a half or two people to do what they do yeah honest to God and uh, so I I don't know I I really think it's just one more symptom of the shift in power away from. Uh, management and corporations to the the working class and i think it's overdue there's more of us than there are of them and i think uh having the collective power that we do the 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 dynamics have shifted and i'm i'm kind of here for it agreed now one more uh, a couple cut little quick uh, update things we want to talk about yeah. before we get to our topic for today um an update on the batgirl leslie grace situation you know, we talked about mm-hmm. In an episode about uh, the dumpster fire that is Warner Brothers Discovery's merger. Ugh. And 
for good or for bad, for whatever reason that they shelved the Batgirl movie, there's reports saying that it wasn't good, reports saying that it was uh, not even as good as a pilot for a TV show could kind of thing. Whatever. Yeah, because we all know the DCEU would not uh, would shelve a movie because it wasn't good, right? Right. Look at you, Zach. Uh-huh. But, Look at uh, you, Bats v. Soups. <laughs> the idea behind that was uh, they're like, oh, well, we're going to uh, still stick with our people and try to make other arrangements with them. And so they were trying to court Leslie Grace as far as, you know, hey, we'd love to bring Batgirl uh, back into the movies and TV shows and whatnot uh, down the line. Um just kind of stick with us and she kindly but firmly told them to go fuck themselves <laughs> and uh i don't have the exact oh wordage but uh i have to imagine just the, the unmitigated gall on their part saying no nah, we're gonna shit can this movie you worked on for six months but uh hey come back and work with us anytime it's like why why would i want to yeah. do that what does that benefit me now, all that does is, is, is shine over the shit that you pulled on me and make it look like I'm okay with it. Nah, fuck that. Yeah. I, I stand behind Leslie Grace's decision. I think that... 100%. Uh, that took a lot of cojones to, to... For a young actress? Yeah. Who was on the cusp of like her first big starring role? I mean, she's definitely done some work or she wouldn't have gotten that part to begin with, but she's she's not a household name. She's not an A-lister. Uh, but for her to, to tell an entity like uh, Warner Brothers and, and the DCEU, yeah, thanks, but no fucking thanks. You guys fucked me over, and so you don't get any more out of me. That, again, is like another shift from, uh, in power dynamic from the, the powers that be to the people who work for them. And, and again, it's just, I'm totally here for it. But, yeah, it was ballsy on her part. I think it's going to lead to more work for her. Because, uh she If did the have MCU the doesn't hire her at this point, but I don't know what Kevin Feige's doing. That would be an amazing yeah. uh, coup, is to bring her into the It MCU. really would. Uh-huh. And a big fuck you to DC. I mean, it re- <laughs> it's, it's like every time you read about somebody who gets dumped by a company, and then they get snapped up by the immediate competition and go on to great success. Well, like what, I, I, like I what happened happens. with James Gunn, when James yeah. Gunn got fired uh, for his problematic past tweets. Uh, how they brought him on to do uh, uh, the Suicide Squad and the Peacemaker series, and those are both Which today are creatively successes. and financially, yeah, the, the biggest successes the DCEU has had so far by hiring right. a Marvel guy. Right, and then Marvel's like, yeah, we're just kidding, come back. And, and he did, because, of course, uh-huh. he did. Yeah. Marvel's got the deep pockets, bro. But uh, Yep, they got uh, that Disney I, money. I, for one, would love to see Leslie Grace just shine in the MCU in whatever role they can offer her. So There are any on. number of parts she could do. Get on it, Kevin Feige. I want to see that happen. Just, just to yeah. spite them. Just to spite them. Show them what uh, they're missing. And then there was uh, one more thing. You actually sent me an article about this, and I'd seen this article previously. Did you want to discuss that? Yeah, this is really sweet. I think um, it's a nice silver lining to an otherwise sad story. But uh, recently, uh, of course, we we lost Nichelle Nichols of uh, Star Trek fame. Yeah. Uh, she was Lieutenant Uhura in both the uh, the original series films and also the original series. Just by all accounts, by everybody that's met her, including friend of the show and co-host of the Mission Log podcast, John Champion, just one of the most wonderful people, just delightful to fans, a joy to be around. Um, nobody had anything but but wonderful things to say about this 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 wonderful wonderful actress. Yeah. And she did pass recently, but I, I saw a story that um, she is going to be 
you know, going boldly where nobody has gone before. She, uh, a portion of her remains uh, are going to be loaded onto a, uh, a rocket ship. And she is going to be partially, at least, launched into outer space. Um, this is an article from NPR. Uh, and now her symbolic journey beyond the stratosphere continues. United Launch Alliance, an American spacecraft launch provider, announced last week that a portion of Nichols' ashes will travel to deep space aboard a Vulcan rocket, very appropriate, with Celestis, a private company that sends people's cremated remains and DNA into space for memorial flights. The first Celestis Voyager service is set to launch later this year and will bear the name Enterprise Flight in honor of its passengers because it will also carry a portion of the remains of Star Trek creator Gene Roddenberry, his wife actor Majel Barrett Roddenberry, as well as those of James Doohan, who played Montgomery Scotty Scott in the series and films. So yep. uh, I think that's really sweet. Um, all these folks who were both uh, symbolically and literally on a crew together to bring us these great stories in this fantastic landmark series that has launched a franchise that continues to delight audiences to this day will be heading to the stars and uh i think that's that's very it's a very sweet denouement to uh to a pretty sad story for all those wonderful creators and actors right and and uh again i just want to uh say how much uh, she touched my life personally and just mm -hmm. I, I i'm honored for her to see this happen because she is one of the sci-fi luminaries and, and to have this kind of thing happen it just feels right you know what i mean yeah it's very appropriate so off into the stars you go with the great bird of the galaxy soar high. and you had one more thing you wanted to touch on before we get into the meat of the matter here um a little bit of a grinds my gears moment about uh bumper stickers and i'm kind of <laughs> with you on this one. Oh yeah yeah i driving as i do for work i i in traffic a lot and I see a lot of vehicles and everything like that and it's just this we talk about on this show about how much representation is so important and mm -hmm. and and something that I support fully and you support fully and, and uh, everything else and so trans representation and and uh, uh, LGBTQ plus representation and uh, POC representation and everything across the board and equal it's pay super for equal work important. And... Yeah, absolutely yeah. Uh, but this thing is, I've been seeing a lot of this, and this is all with the same type of FJB people and 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 whatnot, yeah. the Ma MAGA hat wearing crowd. But uh, the ones who use woke as a slur, right? So you see, like these big old uh, diesel smoke belching trucks, oftentimes with the big old stacks and everything, and uh, along with their thin blue line Punisher uh, stickers and. <laughs> Jesus which make I, again these make no sense to uh, anyone who knows anything about the Punisher that makes no goddamn sense yeah I've been seeing saying, the sticker make the rounds as a meme and it's uh, the Punisher logo and the text next to it says yeah you're not the Punisher you're just a white supremacist who didn't actually read the comics right but uh, in addition to that there's a lot of these uh, oh my, my, my truck identifies as a Prius or I identify as a Prius or shit like that just making light of the uh, gender identity and, uh, uh, and and thing and it just oh that pisses me off to such an alarming degree I just and I finally had and on so many mind. levels it's just it's so just not misogynist what's that it's in the same vein as misogyny it's just but, bigoted 
bigoted. It, it not only it not only misunderstands the struggle of people who have gender dysphoria, and who who are struggling with with things like sexuality and gender identity, but the context in which it's being used as oh it's okay if my car identifies as a hybrid and I can sit here and go blah and roll coal and belch huge fucking black smoke into the atmosphere that's going to kill the ozone layer and and make it so that my kids aren't going to have water crops and clean air. I mean. The fact that it's being used in such an egregious context just adds insult to injury. Yeah, it's just ugly. I don't really have much other than that to say. It's just, it's ugly. And it's a bad fucking look. It is look. very ugly. It's a bad look. Uh, it's one of those things where you look at the car and go, ah, that guy's a douchebag. You can tell right away. Yeah. Right, right along with the, the Calvin peeing stickers or Monster Energy stickers or... Or the truck nuts, truck the nuts. Thin sticker, the Punisher yeah. thing or the... Uh, the you know, I've often, and all that I've shit. often wondered about, like, the people who put that, like, the thin blue painter's tape across their window. If they're yeah. doing that because they know they speed and they think it'll get them out of a ticket. That's all I'm thinking. I think it's just trying to appease whoever's going to pull them over. Bootlickers. What are they? I don't know. It seems shifty to me. Yeah, it's pretty bootlicky either way. Bootlicky indeed. But... Not what we wanted to talk about. I know we've been uh, going on uh, these topics in the beginning of the shows a lot, a lot longer than we normally have. But it's, you know, it's it's good to break things up. There's a lot going on. Yeah, it's good to break it up. But uh, what we actually wanted to talk about today is something that kind of hits close to home for both of us, uh, just Mm -hmm. because we're both musicians. We're both really fond of the musical experience. Uh, and the concert-going experience. And so that's kind of what we wanted to talk about, is our fandom for uh, concerts, rock and roll shows, how we I- absorb yeah. and intake our our music uh, in a live setting. And, and for me, like I said, I took my uh, my son the other day, uh, like a week ago, a week and a half ago now, if I were recording today, uh, we went and saw the uh, Five Finger Death Punch, Megadeth, The Who, and Fire From The Gods show. And uh, it was a fantastic show. People give shit to uh, Five Finger Death Punch, and deservedly so. They can be kind of bro yeah. a lot of the time. But uh, they put on a hell of a show. Say what you want. And uh, Megadeth, of course, for me, was almost a religious experience just because I've been listening to them since high school and finally yeah. got a chance to listen to uh, Dave kick it live, and it was just really cool. And uh, Kind of maybe want to talk about the concert experience and, and and you know how that shapes a musical fandom so uh jim yeah. i know you are been working at a concert venue but uh what was the last big concert that you went and saw for yourself i mean i know you go and see religiously you go and see better than ezra that's a given i just understand oh, yeah. that that's just a part of you but uh, they just do a hell of a show when they have for for th- almost 30 years i've been going to see them Oh, yeah, but, I'm a big uh, fan yeah. of them, too. Not as much as you, but, I mean, I'm a fan, so. Well, that's uh, we've got a, a pretty cool announcement regarding that coming up, but I'm not, definitely not going to get the cart in front of the horse on that one. <laughs> but going to shows, I, I, I honestly, every, okay, every day, because I'm getting old, um, and I'm going to show you this, it's a visual, this Where's is an audio-only doing? medium, but I have one of these. I have this, this old man <laughs> pill tray where yep. I actually count out all my medications, and it's only about two or three... Uh, uh, prescriptions, you know, uh, but oh, I got uh, one of those too. Yeah, but most of it is supplements, and I take I take some fish oil, I take some uh, some vitamins and things like that. But one of the things I take is a supplement called lipoflavonoid. I take it because it's the only thing 
that is shown to be an even semi-effective remedy for tinnitus, which mm-hmm. I have pretty badly. Uh, because I sat down and thought about it the other day, and if I'm thinking of shows that I've worked at, either security or concessions like I'm doing now, or shows that I've attended as an audience member, or shows that I've played with my own bands, which we'll get to in a minute, I've probably been to a thousand shows in my life. And so I, and I, because I, I tend to get there early and I tend to buy tickets to standing room only shows, I tend to have my elbows on the stage a lot of the time. And so I am subject to pretty high levels of volume, which is how I like it. I'm not so ridiculous that I, I go there specifically just to have my ears bleed by the end of the night, but I like <laughs> to get the full rock and roll experience. I like to have my lungs vibrate from the bass. I like to be able to kind of uh, crane my neck a little bit and look at the set list if I can. It's not always possible with some of the, like, the bigger shows that I go to, but I see a lot of bands who have good followings, but they play medium-sized clubs. Um, but I, I just love going to shows and getting as close as I possibly can to the music because there is just no experience that I have found that compares to seeing an artist or a bunch of artists who have comprised a significant portion of the soundtrack of your life recreate that music directly in front of you with Absolutely. you know 30,000 of your closest friends. It's just almost, it's the closest thing I get to a religious experience. Yeah. So I go as often as I can. But to answer your question, the biggest show that I think that I've seen recently, and I didn't really see it, uh, to be honest, because I was working the show and I was a little bit far removed from the actual stage, but I could hear it. I did get to hear uh, the first show back uh, by Ridge Against the Machine in 11 years. Nice. And that was pretty fucking cool. They sound amazing. I didn't get a chance to see them. But, uh, again, like the the amount of shows I've been to, I didn't feel cheapened or cheated out of that at all. Uh, I've just been to... Boy, I think I can count on fewer than two hands worth of fingers the number of bands I've wanted to see that (laughs) I haven't had a chance to see. I've been to so many shows from intimate little things, uh, local bands doing bar shows in, in whatever town I'm living in at that time, to giant arena shows with like nosebleed seats and semi-trucks full of equipment, um, everything in between. And it, every time that I pick up a set of concert tickets, it's just days, weeks, months of anticipation until I get to that show. And it oh, really yeah. is, just, and then you start looking forward to the next one. And I've, I've been very lucky because I live in a town, um, or close to a town uh, near Milwaukee, Wisconsin, that actually has um, what the Guinness Book of World Records calls the largest music festival in the world. And it flies under the radar somewhat. Um, it's called Summerfest, which is not a very original name, but really. to their credit, they have been you know, they, they've been doing the show since uh, the mid-60s. Had to cancel for the first time a couple years during COVID, but um, it is the biggest music festival in the world. It's, I want to say, somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 17 ground stages that are free with your admission. Jesus. And one big amphitheater. And uh, every stage has between eight and ten acts on it every given day. <clears throat> and uh, there are some local bands, sure, um, but the the vast majority of the bands that play at this thing um, are pretty household namey kind of bands. And it's it's nuts because you hear a lot about things like Coachella or Bonnaroo or Big Day Out in Australia or Lollapalooza or all these kind of big old music festivals. I think the reason why Summerfest flies under the radar a little bit is kind of because it's just not a themed festival. Like, if you go to Coachella, you know you're going to see a lot of uh, acts that are popular with millennials. Uh, if you go to Lollapalooza, you're going to see, or like Horde Tour or Vans Tour, you're going to see a lot of pop punk bands. Summerfest is kind of all over the map, just to give you an idea. 
Um, the 2022 lineup, the most recent Summerfest that happened over the summer here in Milwaukee, I'll just read a portion of the acts. There were a few hundred of them there over a 10-day festival. But this particular festival featured Jason Aldean, Justin Bieber, Lil Wayne, Wiz Khalifa, and Wu-Tang Clan, Machine Gun Kelly, Halsey, Rod Stewart, Backstreet Boys, The Black Crows, John Fogarty, Steve Miller Band, Jason Isbell, uh, Hailstorm, Modest Mouse, Death Cab for Cutie, Charlie XCX, Steve Aoki, Third Eye Blind, uh, The Pretty Reckless, uh, let's see, Portugal the Man, Two Chains, The Revivalist, Bare Naked Ladies, The Cult, Boys to Men, Ann Wilson of Heart, Taking Back Sunday, Michael Franti and Spearhead, KC and the Sunshine Bad, Todd Rundgren, Milky Chance, Rick Springfield, Femi Cootie, Anthrax, The Commodores, The Breeders, Guster, Violent Femmes, of course, because it's Milwaukee, Guar, Indigo Girls, Blue Oyster Cult, uh, JoJo, The Village People, The New Pornographers, The Fix, Skid Row, Max Weinberg, The Asbury Juice, and Southside Johnny, um, Modern English, The Tubes, Bob Mould of Husker Du, Bodine's, Striper, ABC, Corinne Bailey Ray, Flock of Seagulls, Slaughter, Warrant, uh, Lita Ford, Stephen Piercy of Rat, Toad the Wet Sprocket, Lit, it's just the list goes, Vertical Jesus, Horizon. I didn't know half of those bands were still a thing. Quiet Riot, Sunvolt, um, Midjure of Ultravox, The Meat Puppets, it's, and this is, I'm reading just like every third or fourth band on this list. This is the biggest music festival in the world. So Summerfest was definitely a big thing growing up for me because uh, you got to buy a $20 ticket. Or if you were smart, you looked for deals because Milwaukee supports Summerfest in a big way. And so there was always one free day if you brought in like a can for the Hunger Task Force of food or something. Or you could get uh, buy one, get one free if you bought a case of beer or something. I mean, anybody that actually pays to go to Summerfest is kind of a sucker. But the tickets, the ground <laughs> stage tickets for all-day admission are like 20 bucks. And yeah, you're going to pay out the ass for beer and food and, and concert merchandise, but for the most part, you know, wh- where else could you buy a ticket and see five or six bands? Like, I, I'll i skip around sometimes. Like, I think there was one day, and I want to say the late 90s, where I went to Summerfest and I saw the full-strength Ramones, I saw the Verve Pipe, I saw the Nixons, I saw Beastie Boys, um, Violent Femmes, and I want to say um, the specials during the one tour that Jerry Dammers was actually back out on tour with them in the late 90s. So, and, and that was just skipping around. I, I, would, if, I, I had the option to see countless bands that day. But you get your schedule, you, you mark it up like you're, uh, like you're at a, uh, a dog track and you're picking your winners. And then you just you go out there and you see your bands. And it's just, it's so tremendous. And my band at the time actually was lucky enough to have played Summerfest a couple of times. We got, like, you know, noon on Tuesday kind of slots because we were hardly a household name, but uh, Summerfest also supports local bands. Uh, They give them really good opening slots on some of these stages. So you might be playing a couple hours out from a band that you enjoy, but we played on the same stage as, I want to say, I want to say it was Third Eye Blind one year. We we played eight or nine slots ahead of them, but um, (laughs) and we didn't we weren't so full of hubris as to say here we opened for Third Eye Blind, but we did say we shared a stage with them, which was uh, not exactly accurate, but not entirely inaccurate either. So it's just a great festival and it's a great experience, and uh, it's just there's there's there are a few things in life that make me happier than seeing concerts. So to be able to go to a, a an outdoor festival and see multiple bands you've always wanted to see in a day. It's just, it's, it's an incredible experience, but any concert is really an incredible religious experience, and, and I just, I, I seek to go to those things as often as I can. 
Now, I, I, I know I've mentioned it to you before, and I may have mentioned it on the program before as well, but uh, my first concert experience was an unfortunate thing uh, as I was 16 years old and uh, really just over the moon with my girlfriend at the time, unfortunately, is who became my ex-wife. But mm. uh, I was trying to get in good with her, and and uh, and I think we all know what that means. Come on, don't make me spell it out. But... Right. <laughs> But uh, she had won concert tickets uh, on the radio and wanted me to go with her. So I went with her. And so this is in Denver, uh, Colorado. We ended up going and seeing Michael Bolton. Which, okay, not my scene, but the dude puts on a mean show. Michael Bolton is fantastic at what he does. I celebrate the guy's entire catalog. <laughs> I don't. I don't really. Know. But uh, and, and this is. Why should I change? He's the one who sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if this tells you how long ago this was, his opening act, Celine Dion. So before Celine wow. Dion, the Canadian princess became a household name. She was opening. For uh, Michael Bolton and my 16-year-old Look, self got to see her on stage, and she did a great I job. I don't give too. a shit who you are. That's a hell of a show. Look, I've gotten to the age now where I stopped apologizing for my musical taste. It's all over the map. I don't have any guilty pleasures anymore; just the regular kind. So, good for you. That's uh, to be able to see uh, whether or not they're they're your scene. They're a couple of living legends, and that's just undeniable. Mm-hmm. So, good for them. Now, the best concert I've ever seen, and this is hands down. I mean, I've seen a lot of different shows. I've seen Aerosmith like half a dozen times. I love Aerosmith. Yeah. Um, I've yet to see Metallica. I still have them on my list. I really want to see them. Uh, but uh, tickets are just ridiculous. Uh, yeah. I've seen Tool. I've seen a bunch of bands like that. But my favorite band, my not my favorite band, but my favorite show that I've been to, and like you said, elbows on the rail kind of thing, up by the stage. Yeah. Rammstein. I didn't oh, know, wow. I didn't know a thing they were saying because they mean Dick right. yeah. German the entire time. And this it's a spectacle. It's 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 music, but it's a spectacle. I mean Till Lindemann mm-hmm. was out there with a flamethrower trying to set his keyboardist on fire and a giant cauldron <laughs> on the stage wearing a bloody apron and, and his his uh, microphone was attached to a butcher knife, for God's sakes. I mean, there was so much fire. Fire! 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 <laughs> Pyrotechnics. I saw this at the Tacoma Dome in Tacoma, obviously. And uh, I was so close to the stage, and there was so much fire, the arm hair on my my forearms was melting off. It was like when you get too close to a barbecue grill, and you see your hair start kind of curling up and, and singing. Oh, yeah. yeah, I was doing that number. What? How hot must it have been on stage? I bet, I'm surprised oh. those dudes have eyebrows left. Fantastically hot. I mean, I believe they were all covered in some kind of anti-flammable kind of shit, like schmear. You'd have to be, I would think. Yeah, I would think so, but... Uh, uh, the spectacle of it, the fire, the music, the audience participation—it was—it was something 
that I've never seen before. It was incredible. And then to top this all off, this part's not exactly family friendly, but uh, they got on a, a cannon that shoots foam over the audience at the end uh, that was shaped like a penis. Mm, yeah. So he's Till Lindemann's riding around on a, on a penis cannon shooting foam into the audience. <laughs> and that's not something wow. you see every day. No, it isn't. And but I have to I mean, that was incredible. honestly almost I I have to respect any artist who who not only has a, a musical thing that they do but also has a um just a, a a show aspect of their presentation whether it's Rammstein whether it's Guar uh whether it's even like somebody like Alice Fucking Cooper Kiss. Alice Cooper yeah Kiss I mean if you honestly I'm going to say something mildly controversial but if you break down Kiss musically they're a pretty simple four chord rock band I mean Right they're just a pretty basic ACDC level, which I'm not digging ACDC either, but ACDC has no delusions about what they do. They're a fucking fantastic world-class band. They deserve all their success. But if you hear an ACDC song, it tends to be three chords, you know it's ACDC. They do what they do really, really well. Uh, Kiss was never going to win any awards for their music. Uh, it's, it's just basic rock and roll stuff, but the fact that they do all the pyrotechnics and the crazy outfits and the makeup and... And the huge stage presentation. I mean, it just adds another layer to the performance. If you're going to a show, you really want to see a show. If you could sit at home and listen to the music, you can listen to the music all you want. But if you're going to a show, you want to see a little something extra. So the bands that I tend to love are the bands that just bring that extra layer of presentation, yeah, of showmanship exactly. to the stage. Whether it's Freddie Mercury, you know, uh, holding 50,000 people in the palm of his hand. Or even whether it's just, you know, my boy Kevin Griffin on, on, on stage with Better Than Ezra who tells stories and who has, you know, amazing stage patter and, and banter. And, they, they, and they, they'll do, they'll, they'll sprinkle a, a cover that shares a similar chord structure in the middle of one of their own songs just to keep things fresh and interesting for everybody. If you go to a show, you should, you should see a show. There should be a little something extra to the live performance experience that you just can't get listening to the records at home. And, and all the bands that I love tend to have that. I think the best show... I mean, obviously, I've seen Better Than Ezra almost 100 times, and they occupy a special place in my heart, so I'm going to disqualify them for that. But I think the show that, if I can look back on it, there are two that jump out for me. Uh, one of them um, was I, I got to work, the same venue that I'm, I'm working uh, pouring beers right now, I used to work security back in the 90s, and I got to see the Eagles uh, on the Hell Freezes Over Tour. Nice. The full-strength Eagles with Tim Schmidt, Don Felder, Glenn Fry. um and Don Henley and Joe Walsh. And it was, man. You know, I, my folks uh, kind of raised me on music. Um, we had always had music in the house and I had a huge appreciation for it still, all the, the classic rock stuff. We've talked about that before. A huge Queen fan, obviously. But, I mean, all of that uh, great old 60s Motown, early rock and roll kind of stuff. But I always love the Eagles uh, because I've always really had a, a, an affinity for bands that do a lot of vocal harmony, which will come up again in a second, which is why I love Queen. But the, the, the Eagles, man, they just they did such an amazing show. And they played every song you'd wanted to play and a lot of deep cuts, too. They played almost four hours, by my recollection. Uh, a, a, like a two-and-a-half-hour-long show and then a, a good, you know, almost hour-and-a-half-long encore. And they were just tremendous. All of them were in great voice. They all played really well. And it was just one of those things where you these these, these songs, <clears throat> regardless of whether you take like a Big Lebowski attitude about it and fuck the Eagles, whatever. <laughs> I love the Eagles and I make no apologies for it. But these songs have been part of the classic American songbook 
since their inception, and so I love them all, and I listened to them, and that was a great show. The other one, similarly, also another great legacy kind of band that hit their full-strength stride in the 70s, and I saw them at their full-strength lineup. Um, couple, it's it's got to be almost 10 years ago now. It doesn't seem like that long ago, but I know because kind of like you recalling the Michael Bolton and Celine Dion show with the girl you were dating at the time, um, my ex-girlfriend, who uh, I split up with about, I want to say, 2015... 2016, somewhere in there, um, before we moved to Vegas, uh, so it had to be about 2013, we, she got me, uh, tickets to see Fleetwood Mac at the United Center in Chicago, and this would have been two or three shows after Christine McVie came back, and about a year and a half before Lindsay either quit or was fired, depending on whose story you believe again, (laughs) so there was a very brief window, that one tour was one of the only opportunities that you could... And again, Fleetwood Mac, we, we covered them in the, uh, the the Musical Chairs episode about all the lineup changes they've had, but most people who are Fleetwood Mac fans are going to acknowledge that their full-strength lineup is going to be Christine McVie, John McVie, Mick Fleetwood, and then Stevie Nicks and Lindsey Buckingham. And it was the five of them on stage, and once again, much like the Eagles, just there's, there's absolute magic. They are... Every one of them is an, an incredible musician, but they are still far greater than the sum of their parts. When they all sing together, the hair just stood up on the back of my neck. They were wonderful. And they played all the hits and even some deeper cuts, again, just like the Eagles did. And they played almost three hours. And good God, were they exquisite. It was just an experience. It was one of the best of my life, and, and I will treasure it forever. Um, but yeah, uh, those were the two that I think really stand out for me in my concert-going career. And it's hard to pick because there have been so many shows that have been just mind-blowingly great. But uh based on who I am as a person and kind of where my musical sensibilities lie, those two shows really jumped out at me as being some of the better ones. You know, and I think that's one of the coolest things about, like like I said, I really enjoyed seeing uh, Megadeth live for the first time. Yeah. Potentially the only time. I mean, I don't know how many years uh, he's got left in him, you know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, we all know that by this point, uh, Dave Mustaine's really the only one left in Megadeth. They've got a new album coming out in early September, like the second or third, I'm not sure which, but it's called The Sick, The Dying, and The Dead. So you would figure going out on this tour, this big tour, that they'd be playing and pushing a lot of the new jams out, right? They've been hitting the radio. They've been putting a few out on the radio. Yeah. Um, but no, they didn't. They stuck to primarily their hits. And... Uh, in fact, I'm going to pull it up here. I, I was kind of live casting to my band the entire time because I was super excited about it. But uh, a lot of their hits, Sweating Bullets, then they went into Tornado of Souls, Countdown to Extinction, Peace Cells, and then they encored with one of my favorite songs, which was Holy Wars off of the Rust and Peace album.
It's like they got nine songs, and all nine of them were just hits. Stuff that they've they've already. I mean, none of it was the new material. Hmm. They knew what their crowd wanted to see, just like the full strength of yeah. Fleetwood Mac. They're not focusing on new stuff. They're putting out what you want to hear. Like the Eagles would be doing. They're putting out what you want to hear. And that's what they were doing. And it was just, it was eye-opening for me. Because, again, this is the music I was raised up on. This is my introduction yeah. to uh, metal and, and, and rock and things like that. And so it was so cool to see. Now, as far as uh, stage presence, you want to talk a bit uh, controversial. I'll go a little controversial with you. Stage presence and, and show aspect-wise, making a spectacle uh-huh. of everything. The Insane Clown Posse. Now, I I did my time as a juggalo. I freely admit it. And I'm not fucking ashamed of it. As you said, guilty pleasures or not, it's just a part of my musical history. It's what I enjoyed at the time. Juggalos I, don't hurt anybody. They're a community. They're just having a good fucking time. Leave them alone. For, and, and yeah, I mean, the, the idea behind that was is, is that, uh, you know, you get to see this band that has almost no commercial play whatsoever do their own thing and not be restrained by, you know, what a record label tells them they have to do and this, that, and the other thing. Yeah. Love them or hate them. ICP made it on their own bones and they continue to. Right. And so, but they do a lot of carnival aspect kind of things fire and jugglers and freaks in masks and they do their their what are they, their worldwide acclaimed bullshit of uh, launching fago root beer and whatever into the sky and into the audience and sticky it is very sticky you leave a concert it's very very sticky uh, but if you catch a bottle not to the face hopefully but if you catch a bottle you can grab a drink too shit why not yeah <laughs> I did too, but it was diet root beer. That diet root beer is horrible. But, <laughs> but I mean, I've been to a couple of their shows as well, and like I said, the theatricality of it is is really on point. Yeah. They give the people what they want to see. They they uh, and, and a, another person that does that very very well, Weird Al Yankovic. Oh God! I've Weird seen Al Yankovic. I've seen him twice. Um, he does all the costume changes. He's got yeah. a video presentation behind him. His band is absolutely one hundred percent fantastic. They can do anything. Oh, the best in the business. They can sound like anyone. Absolutely. I was supposed to see Weird Al on the second edition of his uh, self-indulgent deep cuts tour. Uh, a friend of mine uh, got tickets um, for my lady and I, and all of us were going to go and see him. And then she and I got COVID. So ah. and boy I was mad uh, but uh, but your friend and mine Deanna who we used to uh, do all kinds of fun stuff with back in our uh, you know vigilante days <laughs> uh, realized that um, we actually had been close for many many years but had never met so I want to say this was right before COVID it was I think late summer early fall of 2019 and we were talking and she was telling me hey I got tickets for uh, for me and, and, and a friend to go and see um, Mumford and Sons at Red Rocks and I thought, oh man, Red Rocks—that's a, a bullet list item. 
you know, a, a bucket list item. Sorry, that's I thought, oh, Red Rocks. That's a yeah, it's a bucket list item. That's that's a, that beautiful natural amphitheater with the rock formations that slopes yeah. down into a, the stage, and they got the, the 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 seats carved into the rock. And I just thought, I've always wanted to see something there. So she and I got to talking, and she said, "Tell you what, we've been tight for many many years, about fifteen years at this point. We've never actually met in person. If you can look at the upcoming schedule for Red Rocks and pick out a show you want to see, I'll get us tickets to the show. And if you can get your ass to Colorado, you can stay with me, and we'll go to the show." And the show that I chose was Weird Al Yankovic on the strings attached to her mm-hmm. with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra. And holy shit, what a show. Yeah, that man just turned 60 this year. And uh, he, he still is, is giving off more energy on stage than just about anybody I have ever seen perform live. But, yeah, and that was fantastic. one of the larger scale shows with the costume changes and the video and playing all the hits and all that. So that was just a tremendous, tremendous show. And I got to see it at Red Rocks. And I just... That's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Hopefully I'll get to do it again at some point, but I've even if been. I don't... I've that's... not been to Red Rocks. Oh. And you're from Colorado, man. I mean... I know. If you can, though. I mean, it's, it really is... It's a pilgrimage. It's, at some point, every live music fan has to get to that venue. It's just one of the best in the world. Well, we've got a venue like that out here called The Gorge in uh, George, Washington. And, uh, yes, I know. I hate that pun, too. Jesus... The town of George in Washington has a venue called the Gorge Amphitheater, and it is—it's almost exactly like that. It's in a—it's uh, in a ravine. It's in a natural like uh, canyon area, and so you know the slope seating into that, and it's absolutely yeah. stunning. And I've seen a couple shows there. I think the last one I saw there was Aerosmith about ten years ago, maybe more, a dozen nice. years ago. It was a long time ago. I saw Aerosmith a long time ago there, and uh, really, uh, oh no, it must have been longer than that. See, and that's how when you get old, all the years just blend together. Oh, uh, they do. Because they had fuel opening for them. Oh wow! Back when Fuel's "Hemorrhage" was a big song on the radio. And in and, case uh, my lady's listening, Fuel is an alternative rock band from Pennsylvania. They had a couple of hits in the '90s and have been kind of a uh, an ongoing act ever since. So, yes, yeah. just, just just a little inside joke for for. <laughs> but yeah, okay. So uh, my first show—you said your first show was the uh, the Celine Dion and, and oh, Michael Bolton yeah. extravaganza, which you know, no shame for that. My first show, the first live show that I ever saw. My parents instilled a love in li- of live music in me that persists to this day. But my family—it's a weird story, fun story though. My family was at the zoo, the Milwaukee County Zoo. I was probably nine years old, and my sister was maybe twelve years old. And we just were having a nice day at the zoo, you know, checking out the animals and enjoying the weather. It was summer. As you do. And then on the way, yeah, on the way out of the, uh, the zoo, on the way to the parking lot, it was, you know, 5, 6 in the afternoon. We'd been there since about, you know, nine ten in the morning and seen all the fun animals and had lunch and just had a good day. Uh, but the most memorable part of the day was, as we were leaving, there was a big sign that said, uh, Milwaukee County Zoo Summer Concert Series. And my mom looked at the sign, and that particular day... It said tickets still available. Was a band called Three Dog Night? Nice. And my parents were big fans of, of, of 60s rock, and we listened to a lot of that growing up. My mom was a big fan of uh, the Guess Who and Jefferson Airplane and Three Dog Night and all these great 60s, these seminal 60s rock bands. So she looked at my dad and said, 
it says tickets still available. And my dad's like, well, I mean, we're not going to be able to, to get tickets. And, 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 and by the time he, he said, oh, Joni, we can't, she's already walking to the box office. <laughs> and she says to my dad over her shoulder, I am not leaving this park or this zoo until I see Three Dog Night. Are you kidding me? It's Three Dog Night. And this was, I was nine years old. So it had to have been 1984. Um, so, uh, you know, again, like a legacy act that had been popular about 15, 20 years earlier, but one of those kind of seminal bands they grew up with. Right. And they played them a lot in the house growing up, so I kind of knew all of their hits. So I was like, oh, that's cool, Three Leg Nights. So my mom is already marching over to the box office and got us <laughs> tickets. And the show didn't start till 8. And this is maybe, like I said, 5, 6 in the afternoon. And this was where I learned the trick of, if it's a general admission show, buy tickets early and then rock up as soon as the gates open and you can get right up to the stage. Because that's what we did. The gates opened and we rocked right up to the stage and we only bought tickets a couple hours earlier. So I'm nine years old and that was first, I'm already pretty tall at that point. So I had my elbows on the rail and I'm watching Three Dog Night. And at one point I remember Chuck Negron, who was uh, just recently passed away, um, up there on the stage and he looked down and he actually called us out. He's like, I don't know who these kids are on the front row singing every word to every one of our songs, but clearly their parents raised them right. <laughs> so that was my first concert experience. And uh, I remember it was the first time that I... I can, can think of that I experienced like that sort of like cotton balls stuffed in the ears uh, effect that you get after you've been to a good loud show. Uh, I've toughened up since some a, a little bit because uh, obviously to. I had the tinnitus. And, but that actually, <laughs> it didn't help me uh, years later. So, okay, flash forward, I'm living in Minneapolis. It was probably, I want to say 2009. I remember that because I had the, the ticket stubs hanging on my fridge for a while because it was a good memory. But... We lived next door to uh, this this uh, couple that had uh, um, some kids, and, and one of the kids was uh, maybe 15, 16. Cool-ass kid, played guitar. He used to come over, and he'd play guitar, and I'd play drums, and he, he would come over and play video games. Just a nice kid, and, you know, he just, uh, his name was Travis. And so he uh, came over really excited one day, and he was like, hey, can I ask you a question? I was like, yeah, absolutely. He's like, um, there's a show coming to First Avenue, which is like the, the, a really great club venue in Minneapolis. Prince shot Purple Rain there. I played on that stage, just a really, really cool venue. And he said, uh, Dinosaur Jr. is coming to First Avenue, and my folks don't really want to go, but I love Dinosaur Jr. I know you're into, like, alt-rock, but you want to go if I can get tickets. And I was like, fuck yeah, I'll take you. Because you got to be at least 18 or be there with an older person because they do serve booze there. So um, I acted as his de facto guardian for the night, and we went to go see Dinosaur Jr. Now, notably, I had just been at First Avenue the night before, because my friend Travis McNabb, a different Travis, who uh, played drums with Better Than Ezra for 13 years, um, had since moved on from, from Better Than Ezra uh, on, on really good terms. It was a, a, a scheduling thing. But he had been playing with a couple of other different bands to kind of like still maintain his out-on-the-road touring drummer job. And at that point, he was playing with a guy named Brendan Benson, who uh, is, was in the rack on tours with Jack White, but also has a pretty robust solo career. So he had played at First Avenue, and I went to that show on Travis's uh, invitation and occupied my regular place at the front of the stage, elbows on the rail. It was a good, loud rock show, very enjoyable. Had a drink with Travis afterwards, caught up, good time. So I'm thinking to myself, I know what to expect. I've been to this venue quite a bit. What I was not prepared for, um, I, I love alt-rock, and I like Dinosaur Jr., but I had not really, I, I wouldn't say, like, I had not seen them before. I would not have probably bought tickets had this opportunity not arisen. But Dinosaur Jr. is famous live for, for, for one very particular reason. Um, Jay Maskus, their primary songwriter, guitar player, singer, uh, tends to view rather insane levels of volume as being part of their brand and part of his tone. 
Now, I should have known this when I got there because he actually had three full-size Marshall stacks. I'm talking like the six-foot cab with the, the head on the top, all daisy-chained together behind him in a semicircle that he played in front of. And that should have given me a clue. But they came out and they hit their first number. And I thought to myself, okay, that whole thing about if it's too loud, you're too old. Maybe I'm finally too old for rock and roll. No, no. I was just at this venue last night seeing a good, loud rock show. And, and it was good and loud, but it didn't hurt me. But I'm sitting there listening to Dinosaur Jr. play, and it, it's actually painful. It, it, you've, we've all been to those shows where we're so close to the stage and things are so loud that it was painful. But this was the first time it happened to me. It was literally painful. I could feel my ears. <laughs> I could feel the injury. But I wasn't about to bail because... Yeah, I, I, you know, my, my friend Travis was next to me, and he was having the time of his life, and I wasn't, I gotta go, it's too loud. You know, I didn't want to, to, to wuss out like that and be like the guy that bails. So I sat there for the whole show, and afterwards, <laughs> like, all I could hear was, like, my ears sound like a set of blown Impala speakers from the 70s. <laughs> it was awful. And it took a couple days for my hearing to come back, and that's when I went home and started Googling Dinosaur Jr. plus decibel level dinosaur junior plus tinnitus dinosaur junior plus loud and that's when i found this old pitchfork article of lou barlow who uh was and is dinosaur junior's bass player where somebody asked him so how have you worked next to jay for as long as you have and not come away with massive hearing loss and originally lou said huh but then he, <laughs> he followed that up with actually i haven't the hearing loss that i have sustained especially on the right side because i'm on the left and jay stands to my right and murph's in the middle um the, the hearing loss that I've sustained is about 60% on that side. And that is after understanding that that Jay looked at this volume as part of his tone. And so what I do is I take a pair of 25 decibel reducing earplugs and stick them in each ear. That's a pair in each ear, two in each ear. Then I tape them down with gaffer's tape, the same ones the roadies use to tape the, the uh, cables to the stage. And then I wear a pair of slimline shotgun muffling earmuff headphones underneath my shaggy hair that people think are studio cans because like I'm using as monitors, but I'm not. They're to block the sound. And that is the only way that I could actually stand to be, you know, 15 feet away from that guy uh, for the last 25, 30 years. That's crazy. Um, but I, I read that some Dinosaur Jr. shows in, in, in towns where the constabulatory is a bit more robust than others have been shut down for noise violations because the OSHA chart that hangs up in every industrial... Uh, factory or something has, has a decibel level chart and it, it says if you work in an environment that is above you know 90 decibels you got to take a 10 minute break every hour and wear hearing protection at 110 decibels you got to take a 15 minute break to a half hour break mandated every hour you work plus wear industrial levels of ear protection at 140 decibels it's like standing inside of a jet engine and your eardrums will actually liquefy and run down the side of your head and you'll be deaf um, there are Dinosaur Jr. shows that the cops have walked in with decibel meters during sound check and had to shut down because of the middle of the room, they were clocking 120 to 125 decibels of sound. Jesus, I'm um, just thinking about it. Yeah, and I was right up to the stage. I was probably 20 feet away from Jay's uh, trio of Marshall stacks. And uh, he hurt me. To this day, I'd say most of the tinnitus that I deal with. It was there before I went to that show, but it's been much more persistent and noticeable since that particular show. I can trace most of my hearing damage back to one Dinosaur Junior show at First <laughs> Avenue in Minneapolis in 2009. And that, to this day, is why I take those supplements that uh, actually bring the, the piercing roar down to a dull roar so that I can sleep. 
You're the epitome of long story long. I, did, I forgot we were even talking about your supplements. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brick joke. It just, you know, you throw it up and then it comes back eventually. But, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah, and I mean, uh, I, I, I love going to these shows. I've loved, there's only yeah. been a couple of times where I've opened for bands that I actually listened to when I was younger. Uh, we got to open up for Spineshank, which is a big metal band out of California. Yeah, and uh, we got to open for Head PE. Um, oh, nice! You know, which I'm sure you know who they are. They're like, a, oh yeah, uh, Planet Earth, like punk kind of hip hop, punk metal kind of thing. I don't, I don't quite know how to classify them, but we've opened for them. In fact, uh, we had done a benefit show where I was getting a my my gimmick was I used to have a machete attached to my microphone. That was my gimmick. Uh, people loved it. And so what I did is I bought a machete, and we all signed one side of it, and then we were going to have Head P.E. sign the other side of it, and we were going to auction it off for a, a charity raffle. Nice. Um, we never got it back. It ended uh, up on Head P.E.'s tour bus, and then we never saw it again. <laughs> so, well, I hope they enjoy that. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know. But, uh, I mean, and that's part of it. I mean, like we talked about, the, the, the downside of concert experience, and just something that you have to understand is, like, I took uh, Will, and Will's never had uh, uh, any concert swag, because he's only been to a few concerts, right? Yeah. And so I wanted to buy him his first concert t-shirt. And so, you know, I, I bought a Megadeth shirt, because, you know, that's that was who I was there to see. And my son, yeah. I don't care what you say about it, he really got into Five Finger Death Punch. He likes the songs. He likes the groove. And, you know, fuck you if you don't like him. I don't care. To see right. the light in my son's eyes as he's jamming out to this, he was singing every yeah. word. He was having such a good time, and, and that's electric. As a parent, yep. that's just something amazing to see. And so we took it. Pass it on to your kids. Yeah, absolutely. And so he bought a, a five-figure Death Punch shirt, and he loves it. And the only downside, of course, being price. I mean, we talked about that a little bit, but $45 each for these shirts. Oh sure, yeah. So after taxes, a well, smooth hundo gone. You know that's that's how that's really how bands make money now. Ever since oh, the yeah. recording industry kind of dried up and and they don't uh, really sell records anymore, uh, and streaming uh, revenue is just pennies, 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 pennies. Even worse than it used to be when they were selling records and only making seven or eight cents in every record, plus paying back the recoupable debt that the the, the label put up to record it and promote it in the first place. Right. Uh, they got to get the revenue where they can. I don't begrudge them that. I mean, it's a pain in the ass as a fan to have to spend that much money on merch, but I'll do it because I understand that's kind of their, their revenue stream. And, and right. I, uh, I support the bands that I support financially as well as philosophically and emotionally. Right. And see, and, and I was thinking about that too. And, and of course, things like concessions, $5 for a can of water. Um, twelve, oh, believe 12 me, to that's fifteen dollars for, for a beer. For for know. weekends, uh, the last couple of, of months, I've been working at this Live Nation venue. That uh, people will grouse to me about the price, and I, I usually get on their good side and kind of uh, you know hustle for a tip. I'd be like, yeah, you know, I'm a concert goer too, and I've been on that side of the counter plenty of time. So I understand why paying seventeen dollars for a twenty ounce can of craft beer is going to be a, a kind of a pain in the ass. It's, yeah. Uh, you know, almost a dollar an ounce. I get that. That's that's egregious. But uh, what can you do? You know, it's you uh, fifteen I mean, bucks for a, and, for a and sandwich, just, and just like the merch, fifteen bucks for a cheeseburger. Right, just like the merch pays for the bands, primarily. The um, just like at a movie theater, 
Movie theaters yeah. don't get any money based off of the money no. for the ticket sales. That all goes to Hollywood. Come on, Sam Bob. We're going to Hollywood. Yeah. And whoever be, the powers may be. But uh, theaters make their money off of popcorn and candy and soda and now all these weird microwavable shits that they're selling. And But it's the same thing with these concert venues. You know, your, your $10 bowl of nachos or your... Mm-hmm. You know, $20 small pizza or your $12 Trejo's Tacos. Hey, hey which come, is on, a come thing. on, man. Our nachos are only 7 bucks. Trejo's Tacos had a booth set up at the uh, White River Amphitheater. I didn't go. I wanted to, but I wanted to buy a shirt, and they didn't have any shirts. That's a missed opportunity, guys. If you want... Trejo's Tacos is such a uh, wonderful thing in and of itself, just because Danny Trejo is such an amazing person. I would yeah. have happily paid 25 30 bucks for a Danny Trejo shirt. Just put that out there, guys. Yeah. But, uh, you know, $20 for two bags of popcorn and $10 for two waters. I mean, shit's expensive, but that's how they recoup the bills for getting these acts there. So I get it. I don't begrudge them. I happily paid it. Well, not happily, but you know what I mean. I paid it because I knew I had to. It's part of the experience. uh, I really just... It's something about being in the audience for a show, especially if it's someone that you know. That you know the words to. I mean, I'm sitting next to all these people that I probably wouldn't get along with in real life, you know? this, this Some of these people weren't my crowd, you know? But when the music started and they're jamming out and I'm jamming out and we just look at each other and got that fuck yeah look in your eyes, you know? It's transcendent. This it is. Is, there's no other word to say it. It's transcendent. It, 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 unless it's something purposely polarizing trapped looking at you (laughs) um yeah music can be something that just is for everybody truly is for everybody it's a great unifier you go to these shows and even if the person next to you might be a little bit different than you 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 all at least have something in common you all love the band you're there to see right so that's a shared experience and i have made so many lifelong friends really from waiting in line and sharing rail space with people at these Better Than Ezra shows. And this is something that especially Better Than Ezra fans talk about quite a bit. We actually have a fan group on Facebook that's a few thousand deep. And uh, some of us are more active than others. But we talk about, um, we speculate about the new album they're coming out with. They, they just announced a fall tour. And, uh, you know, we swap rare tracks, which the band doesn't mind. If You know, we'll, we'll buy everything we can, but if something's not available for sale, we definitely trade it and the band is okay with that. Um... But yeah, it's a community, and and the thing is about uh, the, the the better than Ezra fan community, as or as we call ourselves, the Ezraites. I didn't come up with it, but I'm happy to claim the title. Um, <laughs> they they really are just good people because there's something about the music of this band. The thematics of the lyrics are very uplifting. They talk about social issues in such a way that that is very progressive, um, and they just their story and their their journey has just been really. They tend to draw a certain kind of fan, and I have found that uh, if somebody is a better than Ezra fan, I can make certain assumptions about them, uh, about the quality of their character that that are almost never statistically and significantly proven wrong. They're just good people. They're 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 fun people to be around. They're smart people, um, and they just have good taste. And again, that's not me just you know <laughs> trying to pat my own back and saying, but we we all just love this band, and we all just love this band, and it's it's been. One of those things that really brings us all together, and it's a great experience. And of course, going to watch, we're running long even for us, but we have to get into this too, because 
going to see a band is, is, is definitely an amazing experience. But you and I both have a unique perspective because we have been on the other side of that too. Um, right. We have been in bands that people come to see. Um, and of course, obviously, we're not uh, out there uh, doing national tours or anything like our friend Nuda is. I've uh, just got some wonderful things from her talking about the uh, the fall tour that she's doing. Nudamusic.com, N-U-D-A-M-U-S-I-C. Uh, oh, yeah. She's a fantastic artist. Um, and a fantastic but, person. Yeah, we had her on the show, and she just had some really great stuff to say about her experience and the music that she puts out and all that. It was really great to talk to her. Shout out to her. She's doing some great stuff. But we, we've both been in local bands with good-sized followings. And it's just an entirely different experience altogether being on the stage versus being in the audience, but it's analogous. It's analogous because you're sharing a musical experience with everybody that's out there to see you. You're sharing an experience with the, the folks that are standing next to you helping to bring the music to life altogether. And, and it's just a thing that, uh, that, that's kind of incomparable and hard to pin down and hard to describe if you haven't actually had the experience for yourself. It is, and, and and one of the best compliments that I ever received as a musician was I had a guy come up to me at one point and say, you know, I had OzFest tickets for tonight, but I saw you guys were playing, and I came here instead. They gave up OzFest to come see my band. Now, my tribute band, that was back when I was doing the Tool tribute. Um, that's, that's, talk about an ego boost, holy shit, you know? Yeah. And that's someone who had yeah. been to like two or three of our shows, so, I mean... I recognized him. We were talking. I was outside of the venue smoking, and he came up, and he told me all that. And Jesus, I'm surprised I could get my head back in the doorway afterwards. It was so inflated my ego so hard. But, uh, there's, yeah, there's just something about being on that stage and feeling people grooving what you're doing. And especially as it resolves around originals music. And, and I know that yeah. uh, you're, in a, you're in a cover band at this point. We've both been in cover bands, and... Yeah, uh, but the original we've music, also both been in original bands, right? So that that's kind of a different kind of groove because like people are getting down to what you wrote, stuff that you yeah. wrote, you know, pumping their fists and slamming against each other in a mosh pit to shit that you wrote. That's just it's such a heady kind of feeling. I don't even know how to explain it really, but it's addictive. It absolutely is addictive. Yeah, you you always want to you always want to write that new song that's going to get people bouncing in the pit again. Just because you yeah. want that feeling again. One of the reasons I love Better Than Ezra so much is because they're so good to their fans. Uh, and so understanding of, of what it is that they... I, I just heard a podcast recently that, uh, that Kevin Griffin, uh, lead singer, songwriter, guitar player, Better Than Ezra, guested on. And the podcast host asked him, do you get tired of playing the hits? I mean, does it ever get old for you? And Kevin said, legitimately, no. And... He said, you know, if you wrote a song that touched people, if you wrote a song that became a, a, a portion of the soundtrack of their lives, and uh, they have a personal experience and a relationship with that song, um, and you see them out in the audience singing it and just, you know, reliving all the great memories they had of all the different times they've heard it, whether it was, you know, the, on the radio or on the record or coming to see your shows and having a great time, that's that's a responsibility that you have yeah, as an artist to absolutely. to bring that feeling to those people. And when somebody comes up to you after a show or or reaches out to you on social media or whatever and says that song you wrote really meant a lot to me, that's what that's that's what you do it for. That's the whole reason we do this. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of ancillary benefits to it. We've been able to make a living at it. Um, we've been able to have a lot of great opportunities and, and everything that we wouldn't have had otherwise. But the reason you do it at the end of the day is because you get to be a part of somebody's life and you touch their experience and you touch their lives. And, 
and that's that's the most gratifying thing as a musician, as an artist, what have you, to hear somebody say that, and that's what I do it. Absolutely, for. absolutely. So let us know, um, dear listeners, uh, which concert experiences shaped you. Uh, what is your favorite part of the concert going experience? Is it being a part of a mosh pit? Is it uh, grooving out with the music that you love? Is it the people, the atmosphere? Is it the $100 t-shirts and the $50 beers? <laughs> I mean, tell us what your experience is with, with live music. What brings you uh, back? What keeps you coming? Uh, we definitely want to talk to you about that. And uh, you can do that by hitting us up on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash fandom. You can send us a good old-fashioned email at feelyourfandom at gmail.com. Backup email address is fyftalentbooking at gmail.com. You can find us on Instagram at at feelyourfandom, on Twitter at at fuel underscore your. And, of course, we're always taking donations for the Fuel the Future program that gets comics into the hands of underprivileged kids at PayPal, Venmo, and Cash App at at feelyourfandom. And, as always, you can find us where you get fine podcasts. We're on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Audible, Spotify, iHeartRadio, no matter how you get us in your ear holes, we appreciate that you get us in your ear holes. Yes, indeed. We are everywhere, and we will continue to be everywhere for as long as we can possibly stand each other, which is fantastic. So, uh, <laughs> we want to looking thank... good for a long term. Yes, yeah, so we're doing pretty good. But uh, we want to thank you guys for listening yet again, and please do remember, as always, that everything is fandom, and fandom is everything. Take care. <laughs>